This audiobook of the original America Burning was produced by the Firefighter Podcast Combustible. More details on this project can be found online at www.combustiblethepodcast.com. The audio for this recording is consistent with all copyright rights and permissions associated with America Burning and is not affiliated with or endorsed in any way by the federal government or the U.S. Fire Administration. Chapter 3. Are There Other Ways? Smoke is pouring from the windows of a vacant apartment on the third floor of a tenement. A passerby runs to the nearest fire alarm box and pulls the lever. Instantly, a gong sounds in the fire station eight blocks away, the pattern of its ringing indicating the location of the alarm box. Firefighters jump into their heavy boots, don their helmets and canvas coats, and sprint aboard a pumper. Other men board the ladder truck sitting next to the pumper. In less than a minute, after the sounding of the gong, the pumper and the truck are racing down the street toward the fire, their sirens wailing. Simultaneously, engines from other fire stations head toward the fire. This is a scene that is repeated hundreds of times a year in every city. Except that internal combustion engines have replaced horses, this is the way fire departments have responded to fires for as long as anyone can remember. Seldom does the question arise, is this the best way to respond? It is the duty of every fire department to save lives and reduce injuries and property losses when fires occur. Our nation's record in each of these areas needs vast improvement. Because human carelessness accounts for most fires, it is the public, not the fire departments, that must shoulder the major burden of improving the nation's fire record. Moreover, the vast majority of firefighters are volunteers who take grave risks without compensation, and they are giving all the time to their fire companies that their busy lives permit. Many fire departments, both paid and volunteer, are performing as well as their resources allow, yet the nation's fire record gives them no ground for complacency. How can fire protection be improved? The easy answer is to augment the budgets of fire departments by 20, 30, or 40 percent so that more equipment can be bought and more firefighters hired. But it does not follow that increases of 20, 30, or 40 percent will be matched by like reductions and losses of life and property. Nor is it realistic, at a time when most local governments are financially squeezed, to speak in such terms. The more realistic solution for most communities lies in careful assessment of what future investments, whether in men, equipment, or new programs, will maximize effectiveness, then a gradual shift to priorities toward the most cost-effective measures. In such an assessment, basic questions need to be asked. Communities for which the scenario at the beginning of this chapter is typical might ask, how many firefighters should respond to every single alarm fire? How many pieces of equipment? One study shows that less than 1% of all calls for service require greater effort than can be handled by two or three men and one fire engine. On the other hand, does sophisticated and expensive equipment make a critical difference in the time it takes to suppress a fire? Does it save more lives and reduce property losses? Paid fire departments typically spend most of their money and efforts on fire suppression. Usually less than 5% of the budget is devoted to fire prevention. If part of the money spent on responding to the tenement fire had been spent instead on enforcing a tough fire prevention code, would the fire have occurred at all? Other questions for communities to ask. How should firefighters be scheduled and deployed to ensure effectiveness and efficiency in fire department operations? When a volunteer or paid department has recruited all the members it can or can afford, might help be found elsewhere? Should a town or small city have its own fire department? Or should it consolidate fire services with neighboring communities to avoid duplicating costs? As communities undertake a basic reassessment of their fire services, they will have to find solutions best suited to their conditions. 
Some communities are at an early stage of growth where they can consider a number of alternatives to their present system of fire protection. Others have a heavy investment in their present system and can consider only a gradual shift of priorities. Solutions appropriate to large cities are not likely to work for small towns and bedroom communities. For years, fire chiefs and local governments have been listening to one outside voice telling them how to improve their fire services. That outside voice has been the score their community receives on the grading schedule of the Insurance Service Office, formerly of the American Insurance Association. The grading schedule was devised as a tool to assist in setting fire insurance rates for each community. It was not intended as a guide to fire department decisions, though circumstances have invited that kind of use. When a community score has indicated that two or more fire engines would earn at a lower insurance rate, local governments have felt pressed to buy them. Now, local administrators are beginning to recognize that their community's interests and those of the grading schedule do not necessarily coincide. The grading schedule, for example, is directed primarily toward preventing property losses. Deaths and injuries are also prevented as a result of this concern, but they are not the foremost consideration. The grading schedule attaches only small importance to fire prevention. Ironically, few local governments expend as much on fire prevention as the grading schedule recommends. As we discuss in chapters 11 and 16, more attention by fire departments to fire prevention through fire safety education, building inspection, and approval of the fire protection features of building plans would significantly reduce life and property losses and injuries from fires. Fire departments can't be blamed for the ignorance and indifference that cause unsafe buildings to be built, that account for shoddy wiring and hazardous storage, that contribute to people's carelessness with matches and cigarettes, that explain the counterproductive behavior of people when fire breaks out. But, if the tides of ignorance and indifference are to be turned back, as surely they must, then fire departments are the natural place for the effort. As educators and enforcers, fire departments can do much to lessen the incidence and destructiveness of fire. The importance of the prevention role is underscored by the fact that fire departments can do so little when fires have gotten out of hand before they were notified. The Commission recommends that local governments make fire prevention at least equal to suppression in the planning of fire department priorities. The Present System One reason large cities and smaller communities are likely to arrive at very different solutions to enhancing fire protection is that they tend to have distinctly different fire departments. Most large cities have paid fire departments. Many smaller communities are protected by volunteer departments. About one million Americans serve as volunteer firefighters, five times the number of paid firefighters in the nation. By one estimate, based on what it would cost to replace volunteers with paid firefighters, the nation's volunteers are rendering a public service worth at least $4.5 billion annually. The huge diversity among volunteer fire departments makes generalization about them difficult. While some are strapped for manpower, others are endowed generously enough to send all of their active members to state firefighter school each year. Some serve isolated rural towns on budgets as low as $3,500 a year. Others are called upon to serve a densely populated area of 50 square miles with substantial budgets and manpower. The hazards they protect against range from widely scattered houses and barns to heavily populated urban areas. The striking aspect of volunteer departments, of course, is that they cost far less than paid departments. Then, too, volunteers are often people of standing in the community, are dependent on other citizens for contributions to the department so that a broad segment of the community is supportive of the department and conscious of the fire problem. On the other hand, volunteer departments often can afford only a low level of training and an inadequate dispatching and communication system. When a fire occurs, turnout can be uncertain. 
their part-time members usually lack the experience of full-time firefighters. They also, in many cases, lack the manpower to do building inspection and other fire prevention work. Since paid departments are generally larger and have more men on duty more of the time than volunteer departments, they tend to be more complex organizations. In addition to having specialized companies, for example, engine, ladder, snorkel, rescue of from two to seven firemen, paid departments often have special staffs for training, fire prevention, communications, purchasing, community relations, and other purposes. With such complexity, typical problems of bureaucracies emerge. Lack of coordination among separate units, the subordination of central purpose, public service, to petty rules and red tape, the stifling of innovation. Presiding over this tenuous alliance is the fire chief who wears two hats. One, the administrative hat required to run the organization. The other, the helmet he dons when the alarm is sounded to lead his firefighters in the suppression of a fire. Since the fire chief usually has come up through the ranks, the second hat probably fits comfortably. It is the administrative duties of today's complex municipal department for which the chief is less likely to be adequately prepared. Alternatives for the future Whether the fire department is volunteer or paid, fire prevention and protection can be improved in every community in the nation. Few, if any, communities can say they have reduced life and property losses from fire to the extent humanly possible. For most communities, improving the effectiveness of the fire service calls for gradual changes within the present structure a shift of priorities toward fire prevention, better deployment systems, improved management practices. Other communities will want to consider a major shift from their present system. In the next few pages, we will explore some of the alternatives open to them. Part volunteer, part paid. Communities that have grown in size or complexity beyond the capabilities of their volunteer fire departments need to consider a shift toward paid departments. Among the advantages of a paid department is the fact that, if it replaces several volunteer companies, it can ensure that fire protection resources are spread equitably in the community. One source of criticism, of course, is the increased cost of paid manpower. But the shift need only be partial. For example, many volunteer departments can summon adequate manpower during evening and nighttime hours but are hard-pressed for manpower during daylight hours when volunteers are at their jobs. In such instances, it would make sense to have paid firefighters on duty during the daytime. Auxiliary Firefighters An alternative source of supplemental manpower sometimes used is municipal employees, who can be called away from their main jobs without serious detriment to the chief function they perform. Reliance on such personnel for first alarm capability would certainly be ill-advised. However, if adequately trained as firefighters, they can be a source of secondary manpower. Woman Power when a small Florida community organized a volunteer fire department several years ago, it faced the classic problem. The 15 male members were not available during the daytime. The solution, nine wives took over the daytime obligations. They have responded to as many as six brush fires in a single day, and the fire chief describes the system as working beautifully. In a suburb of Columbus, Ohio, wives are similarly organized as a daytime rescue squad. Fire departments that face physically strenuous tasks day in and day out will understandably be reluctant to hire women as firefighters. But reluctance to hire women for less taxing duties such as dispatching, ambulance driving, and inspecting buildings is harder to defend and indeed is likely to be challenged legally with increasing frequency in coming years. The Commission recommends that communities train and utilize women for fire service duties. Police Fire Consolidation a small number of communities have consolidated partially or fully their police and fire departments. One recent source lists 23 cities and towns with fully consolidated departments, usually called public safety departments, 
10 with partial consolidation, and 2 with selected area consolidation, that is, confined to certain neighborhoods. Of the cities with fully consolidated departments, 17 of the 23 are in communities with fewer than 10,000 residents. Generally, they are affluent residential communities lacking the hazards associated with aging urban centers or large industrial districts. They do not have the crime problems of urban areas. Hence, the absence of patrolmen during a fire is less risky than it would be in larger cities. The 23 communities all have some form of cooperative patrolmen or public safety officers. That is, men with some firefighting training who are primarily police officers but who respond to fire alarms and provide various forms of assistance. In one city, for example, neighborhood patrols carry resuscitators and large fire extinguishers in their vehicles. Patrolmen are not called away from crime control if a fire occurs. In another, public safety units staffed by two firefighters cross-trained as police officers patrol an assigned area in station wagons equipped with firefighting equipment, first aid equipment, and protective clothing. Two additional firemen are assigned to each piece of equipment at the fire station. Hence, total manning is four men per company. 90% of the time, the station wagon arrives first at fires in its district, and one-third of the time, its patrolmen are able to handle the fire unassisted. Consolidation appears to work in areas where neither the crime problem nor the fire problem is serious. As either problem rises in seriousness, so does the potential for conflict of purposes, with the result that attention to one problem will be sacrificed to attention paid to the other. Indeed, the more serious is either problem, the more important it is to have personnel specially suited for attacking the problem. Fighting fires and fighting criminals call for very different skills. They also call for men with very different kinds of motivations and very different assessments of the kinds of risks they are willing to take. That firemen and policemen are of different kinds of people is attested to by studies which find that firemen make much better paramedics. Several other cautions are in order. While consolidation plans make valuable use of firefighters' non-emergency time, there are functions related to fire protection that deserve higher priority. Fire prevention inspections, fire safety education, rescue and paramedic services among them. Moreover, no community can say with full assurance that its fire problem is small. An additional consideration. If firefighters also have law enforcement duties, they will be bad choices for conducting residential fire safety inspections. Suspicions about their true intentions will make them unwelcome in many homes. Reduced services. An additional alternative for communities is to freeze suppression services of the fire department at the present level, while at the same time placing more of the future burden for fire protection on the residents of the communities. This is not as novel as it may sound. Many communities require buildings of a certain size or type of occupancy to have sprinkler systems in whole or in part, and many require that major industrial plants have their own fire brigades. By spreading such requirements to other classes of buildings, communities can reduce fire losses without further taxing the capabilities of the fire department. In many countries, we might add, preventing destructive fires regarded primarily as the responsibility of the property owner, not the fire department. Private Contracting a further choice, laden with controversy, is to contract for fire services with a private firm. Many of the nation's early fire companies were incorporated under state law and provided their services on a contract basis. Private contract companies exist in parts of Tennessee and Arizona. Some city managers have been attracted to the idea of private contracting on the grounds that a private company is more likely to exhibit sound management practices, efficiency, and innovation than an arm of the government. On the other hand, the pressures to make a profit run counter to the fundamental aims of the fire service, to save as many lives and to reduce as many injuries and property losses as possible. A community considering contract service must define its requirements and standards of performance very carefully. It must have continuing proof 
through the company's records of performance that community expectations are being met. Once it has drawn a contract with adequate provisions, a community must face the possibility that no entrepreneur will come forward to assume the risks. Governmental Contracting Many communities have mutual aid agreements with neighboring communities so that they work together to cope with major fires. A more formal banding together occurs when a community pays a neighboring or encompassing political jurisdiction to provide it fire protection. The Los Angeles County Fire Department serves 35 communities on this basis. Services provided range from paramedic teams to forest fire suppression. Communities benefit from the availability of equipment and specialized services that they could hardly afford on their own. Regionalization Contracts between governments are but one route to a very successful method of improving the fire services. Another route is through regionalization. The experience of Great Britain with regionalization is instructive. During World War II, that country's fire services were nationalized for the sake of defense. After the war, the fire services were denationalized. But rather than being divided into the 1,500 jurisdictions that had existed before the war, they were consolidated into about 150 fire jurisdictions. Resources were pooled, and economic efficiency was gained through the elimination of duplicated services. In particular, the advantages cited of the British experience were more efficient manning through the combining of small companies, greater operational effectiveness through better manned companies, uniform fire suppression methods, direct control of response of all companies, rather than depending on mutual aid agreements like those in many American communities, and the ability to concentrate manpower rapidly at major fires. Better communications. Better training facilities as a result of a larger tax base supporting them. More uniform regulatory code enforcement. Economies affected through large volume purchases and standardization of parts. Better record-keeping with less total effort. While regionalization has succeeded in some areas of the United States, it has been stoutly resisted in other areas. Fire departments, especially volunteer departments, have developed an esprit de corps and a pride in their achievements, and they are understandably reluctant to sacrifice the measure of autonomy that regionalization would require. Having raised through donations $50,000 to buy a fire truck, they are reluctant to relinquish any control of it. Companies that have developed personnel and operational policies which they feel are superior to those of other companies in the region fear they might have to give them up for the sake of regional uniformity. Others argue that enlarged jurisdictions put control in the hands of people not familiar with local conditions, lessen civic interest in the fire services, and introduce morale problems as a result of less personal relationships in the larger organization. And some fear that regionalization would phase out some companies in the name of efficiency, thereby increasing response distances to fires in some areas. With careful planning, however, fears can be abated and the real problems overcome. Furthermore, if the protection of the public is not first-rate, then the effort needs to be made. It behooves county governments and municipal governments in which several independent fire companies still exist to explore means of affecting regionalization of their fire services. At a minimum, such explorations should cover formal arrangements for mutual aid, especially during large fires the sharing of management and of specialized functions such as arson investigation and fire safety education, centralization of purchasing and training, uniformity in all important practices, standardization of reporting procedures, and the institution of an area-wide communications and dispatching system. State governments have an obligation to promote regional approaches to fire protection. As it is now, many states have laws that hamper cooperative arrangements among local jurisdictions. The Commission recommends that laws which hamper cooperative arrangements among local fire jurisdictions be changed to remove the restrictions. Fire Protection Planning. Planning 
Which, if any, of the foregoing alternatives is appropriate for a community will depend on its careful analysis of present conditions and directions of future growth. Fire protection is only one of many community services. Not only must it compete for dollars with other municipal needs, such as the education system and the police department, but, in planning for future growth, the fire protection system must take into account the changes going on elsewhere in the community. For example, if a slum area is to be torn down and replaced with high-rise apartment buildings, that will change the fire protection needs of the area. Changes in zoning maps will also change the fire protection needs in different parts of the community. To cope with future growth, local administrators are turning increasingly to the concept of master planning of municipal functions. Such plans include an examination of existing programs, projections of future needs of the community, and a determination of methods to fill those needs. They seek the most cost-effective allocation of resources to help assure that the needs will be met. A major section of a community general plan of land use should be a master plan for fire protection, written chiefly by fire department managers. This plan should, first of all, be consistent with and reinforce the goals of the city's overall general plan. For example, it should plan its deployment of manpower and equipment according to the kind of growth and the specific areas of growth that the community foresees. It should set goals and priorities for the fire department. Not only is it important to set objectives in terms of lives and property to be saved, but also to decide allocations among fire prevention inspection, fire safety education, and fire suppression as the best way to accomplish the objectives. Having established goals, the plan should seek to establish management by objectives within the fire department. This operates on the principle that management is most effective when each person is aware of how his tasks fit into the overall goals and has committed himself to getting specified jobs done in a specified time. Because fire departments exist in a real world where a variety of purposes must be served with a limited amount of money, it is important that every dollar be invested for maximum payoff. The Fire Protection Master Plan should not only seek to provide the maximum cost-benefit ratio for fire protection expenditures, but should also establish a framework for measuring the effectiveness of these expenditures. Lastly, the plan should clarify the fire protection responsibility for other groups in the community, both governmental and private. The Commission recommends that every local fire jurisdiction prepare a master plan designed to meet the community's present and future needs in fire protection, to serve as a basis for program budgeting, and to identify and implement the optimum cost-benefit solutions in fire protection. Wherever possible, this should be a regional jurisdiction embracing several political jurisdictions, for example, countywide or larger in rural areas and metropolis-wide in urban areas. In Chapter 4, we discuss the tools to carry out this program. In other chapters, we recommend federal assistance, in the form of grants for equipment and training, to local fire departments to improve the reduction of fire losses. Such assistance should be in response only to well-substantiated needs. Hence, the Commission recommends that federal grants for equipment and training be available only to those fire jurisdictions that operate from a federally approved master plan for fire protection. The Commission recognizes that the planner who sets out in search of the most cost-effective solutions to his local fire problems is faced with scanty data on which to make such decisions. What is the difference in performance, if any, between a fire station that serves a 12-block radius and one that serves a 6-block radius? How is performance affected by the addition or subtraction of one man on a pumper? What are the hazards most important to eliminate through building and fire prevention codes and enforcement? There is a dearth of systematic studies of methods of fire protection. We have advocated that master plans include provisions for evaluating various approaches to fire protection, but until such time as evaluation can be made, master planning will be a very inexact approach to rationalizing fire protection. The need is not only for more systematic studies of methods of fire protection, 
but for a centralized office to collect and disseminate evaluation data so that communities can learn from each other. The Commission recommends that the proposed United States Fire Administration act as a coordinator of studies of fire protection methods and assist local jurisdictions in adapting findings to their fire protection planning. In this endeavor, the U.S. Fire Administration should work closely with other federal agencies, such as the National Bureau of Standards, the Department of Agriculture, and with private fire protection groups such as the Joint Council of National Fire Service Organizations and the National Fire Protection Association.